This is the Stanley Avenue Church of Christ. We're going to be going through our weekly reading, Genesis chapter 3 this week. Genesis chapter 3. So if you want to follow along, I'll be reading from the uh, NET translation to start with, and then uh, we can follow up um, with uh, maybe a more broad range of readings as well. So go ahead and follow along and read with me Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was shrewder than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Is it really true that God said you must not eat from any tree of the orchard? The woman said to the serpent, Well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the orchard, but concerning the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the orchard, God said you must not eat from it, and you must not touch it, or else you will die. The serpent said to the woman, Surely you will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree produced fruit that was good for food, was attractive to the eye, and was desirable for making one wise, she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some of it to her husband, who was with her, he ate it. When the eyes of both of them opened, and they knew that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord moving about in the orchard at the breezy time of day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the orchard. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And the man replied, I heard, your, I heard you moving about in the orchard, and I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid. And the Lord God said, Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, The woman you gave me, she gave me some of the fruit of the tree, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman replied, Well, the serpent tricked me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the cattle and all the living creatures of the field, and on your belly you will crawl, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike you on the head, you will strike him on his heel." To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your labor pains. With pain you will give birth to children. You will want to control your husband, but he will dominate you. But to Adam he said, Because you obeyed your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. In painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. But you will eat the grain of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat food until you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken. You are dust, and to dust you will return. The man named his wife Eve, because she was the mother of all living. The Lord God made garments from skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Now that the man has become like one of us, 
Knowing good and evil, he must not be allowed to stretch out his hand and to take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God expelled him from the orchard in Eden to cultivate the ground from which he had been taken. When he drove the man out, he placed on the eastern side of the orchard in Eden angelic sentries who used the flame of a whirling sword to guard the way to the tree of life. This is a chapter we often label as the fall of man, aptly named. The place where God's paradise, God's Eden, has to be uh, cursed. Uh, the, the ground itself is no longer the same after this, and, and mankind's relationship with God is no longer the same after this. I would suggest that man's relationship with woman is no longer the same after this. So many consequences because of what happens here. And I think we have all heard good Bible studies and good sermons, good devotionals on some very good points to take from this. The importance of listening to God, the importance of obedience, the love that God has for us, His desire for us uh, to be clean and to have life, and the idea that our sin, the lies that Satan feeds us, will remove us from His presence. But like the other chapters, I want to go ahead and think for a second about how this pertains to the Israelite history first. And, and this is where it begins to envision, kind of foreshadow things that will yet to come. If, if it's true, our, our suggestion earlier that, that Moses wrote this maybe to the generation that was about to enter paradise, uh, about to enter their Eden, the Palestine, there are certain warnings here of things that will happen uh, in their history things that they need to be careful of and uh, and to reject. And so what we're going to find is that this pattern established by Adam and Eve is the same pattern that all of God's people fall to eventually, that all mankind uh, falls to. And of course, Paul references that very kind of a thing in Romans 5. The fact that the first Adam, we all follow in the footsteps of the first Adam, whether we do it in the likeness of his sin or not. And that means that we, we require a, a second Adam, a second great example to follow in the pattern of, and that's what Jesus came to be. And of course, this passage has kind of the first, what we call the first prophecy of, of salvation, the, uh, the seed or the, the offspring of the, of the woman who would crush Satan's head. And, and we do see that happening in the days of Jesus. Uh, the way that he is able to crush death, he is able to crush sin, and we can be spared and saved uh, from our own deaths. But from the perspective of the Israelites, let, let's think about this for a second. So after the Israelites had been brought into the land, you'll notice the emphasis here that man was taken out of the dust that was outside of Eden and then brought into Eden. Why did God not create Adam out of the ground of Eden itself? Well, it's to show them uh, that their initial state by themselves is not so pretty, uh, that it takes God bringing them into a beautiful land for them to really uh, gain it. And likewise with the Israelites, they were not formed in the land of, of Canaan. It is interesting as you re, uh, continue to read Genesis, this is one of the points it appears to be making, uh, that the Israelites came from a different land, from Egypt, that God chose not to cultivate the nation in Palestine, but rather in Egypt. 
even the 12 tribes, um, most of them, uh, with Benjamin as an exception, and even then uh, the text of Genesis treats it, uh, treats all of them together, are born outside of the land of Canaan, and paid in Aram uh, is, the, is the symbolic term there. And then uh, many others were then born, again, Ephraim and, and Manasseh, Joseph's sons, they were born in Egypt also. So really, you know, the way the text of Genesis reads, all the 12 tribes were born outside of the land proper. And Benjamin, of course, is kind of a, an odd exception to that. Um, and then they are cultivated in Egypt and then brought into Palestine, into their Eden. And so uh, the Satan is going to come, he is crafty, he is devious, and he is going to come with certain temptations. As we reflected about in chapter 2, the Garden of Eden and the Tree of Life and the Tree of Knowledge of Good and Evil, in a lot of ways represent the tabernacle or the temple, the worship, the place, the house, the seat, the throne of God, that the tabernacle itself was designed to look kind of like a garden, and the temple certainly was also. And so we can suggest that the, the law itself, the Ten Commandments, the Ark of the Covenant, those kinds of really holy things, are the access both to life and to the knowledge of God. And God's command to the Israelites at Sinai was, you make sure to strictly keep this covenant, do not mess with this holiness. Do not mess with this law. Do not turn aside to the right or to the left. And I, I think that's that's really the same kind of command that's being given here. Do not touch this tree of knowledge of good and evil. God, God essentially gave the same command to the children of Israel. Do not touch what has been revealed to you. It cannot be tampered with and warped and twisted to your own benefit. But what we find is that the, the Satan comes, and when he tempts Eve into this, he tricks her into thinking that this will actually turn out to be a good thing. And this is exactly what the Satan does through multiple influences throughout Israelite history. He gets them to approach God's tabernacle, his priesthood, his altar, his holiness, his worship practices, everything about the law, and the Satan gets... Satan gets, through trickery, the Israelites to think that making changes to what God has authenticated are somehow a good thing, that it will result in something better. And before you know it, they have completely warped and, uh, and, and uh, changed the system and the law and the practice. And again, as you read uh, the books of Judges, uh, that, that becomes apparent that they have so far deviated from the law, that that the Satan has been active in doing the same kinds of things to them as he did for Eve. They think it will turn out better for them. Now, last week I said in chapter 2 that we're going to be switching the metaphor a little bit. Let's just say that in chapter 2, God presented man, uh, generic, with the command to cultivate the land to keep it, and that is symbolically represented with his command to Israel as a nation— to cultivate and keep his holiness and righteousness while in the land of Palestine, and that God set apart from out of the side of Israel the tribe of Levi to help them in that service and to help them in that work. Well, in chapter 3, I want to suggest that perhaps we've got a reversal of that kind of a thing, where in chapter 3, uh, the 
the priests are supposed to be the leaders. Uh, the priests and the Levites are supposed to be the teachers of the law, just like Adam was supposed to be the leader and the teacher, uh, being the one to set the regulations and the tone of uh, and the direction of the families of Israel. That's what the priests and the Levites were, were supposed to do. And the people then are like Eve in this situation, where Satan gets them tricked into pursuing idolatry in paganism and in making changes to what was sacred about the knowledge of God. And so the people start to pursue that, and then we quickly find that they then bring that influence into the priesthood, where the priesthood and the Levites and the law and those who are supposed to be holy, they also partake of the same kinds of idolatries. They also eat, but they knew better. And that seems to be the point to Adam, that Adam knew better. Eve was tricked, Adam was not. And through many of the prophets, what we find is as they're condemning Israel, yes, Israel is condemned, but there is a higher condemnation for the leaders, the teachers, the priests, who knew better, who knew the law, and yet they turned aside anyways. And it seems to be presenting itself similarly here in chapter 3. And so the pattern of Israel's fall mirrors the pattern of Adam and Eve's fall as well. So they sin, they eat the fruit, and then God comes to walk amongst them. This is another pattern we find in the prophets, where God coming to walk amongst his people, coming to visit this is seen as an act of judgment at times, if you need to be judged. It's a, um, an act of, of mercy to those who need to be saved from their distresses. But God coming to visit his people is, is a prominent theme throughout the prophets. And most of the time he's coming to judge because they've messed up. And this is exactly what happens here. God comes to walk in the garden to visit his land and to see how things are going. Last week we referenced Isaiah chapter 5 and uh, Mark chapter uh, 12 with the parable of the vineyard that the owner of the land sent back messengers, and eventually he himself will come to visit and to see how things are going. God comes to visit to see how things are faring. And we don't know how often he did this. It seems that if Adam and Eve knew that he was coming they probably would have prepared themselves more diligently by either resisting the Satan, by making better garments, whatever. They were unprepared. And that becomes another huge theme throughout the New Testament, that God is going to come at a time that many people will be unprepared, at a time that most people do not expect he's going to come, and their desire is going to be to hide themselves. The prophets talk about, remember the... um. People are running to the mountains and saying, fall on us. Why? Because they're ashamed to stand before the Lord's presence at his coming. So the Israelites are certainly going to have the same reaction that Adam and Eve had. They're going to try to cover themselves uh, with temporary, quick reaction kinds of, well, let's just, you know, throw this random thing together and try our best, right? Well, they're not really trying their best. Uh, they're not really confessing. Notice that Jesus or, or God has to worm it out of them to confess. And nobody really confesses and asks for forgiveness. Instead, they're trying to shift blame. Adam shifts blame onto the woman and onto God for giving the woman to him. The woman shifts the blame onto Satan. So their hearts are not really in a repentant spirit at the time. And so God brings this judgment. 
Now, in God's mercy, you will note that even though the command was, do not touch or do not eat, or you will surely die, in the day you do this, you will die. Now, Satan comes and he says, oh, you won't die. Well, Satan's trying to manipulate the truth. Well, they, they would die. Satan was just trying to blend or, or perhaps separate uh, the physical from the spiritual there. Um, and, and trying to get them to think that, well, you can live your life however you want to, and that that doesn't affect your spirit. Well, God ha always had in mind that the day they would eat, eat of it, their souls would in fact die. That's just the reality of the consequence of sin. However, God does choose in his punishments here to be merciful. He could have chosen to completely exterminate them. It is his mercy that allows Adam and Eve to live physically at this point and to give them an opportunity for future repentance. And so, so many of the times we see that God's judgments are also merciful, and it's very much connected to discipline, where a parent who disciplines the child, if they do it the right way, it is often a form of mercy because hopefully it will correct the child's behavior, it will allow opportunities for repentance, and it will hopefully lead to something better if the child will accept the discipline. So now the question is, will Adam and Eve, will Israel accept the discipline when it comes their way? Of course, the punishment to the serpent is clear, uh, that uh, he will be then lowest of all created things, and he will not win in his battle against mankind. It is my opinion that Satan comes to try to tempt Adam and Eve because he knows that Adam and Eve are the highest of God's creation. And to be honest, uh, the implication we get, let's say at the end of Hebrews chapter 1, that angels were created, uh, or, or at least part of their job, is to then serve the saints. It may be possible that Satan was given a similar charge to serve these humans and couldn't bring himself, his pride got in the way, and he thought that he needed to be over them. So he tries to put Adam and Eve under his power and control. He treats himself as superior to them, and he comes in the form of a creature. The creature is supposed to be subject to mankind, but he comes as a creature to upset that balance of authority. If he can get mankind to listen and bow down to creation, he will have them. Interestingly, throughout uh, the time of Exodus, a serpent is most often associated with the land of Egypt. And so what temptation the Israelites are going to have is going back to the type of idolatry that they were accustomed to seeing while they were in Egypt. And many of the kings of Israel had to fight the temptation to come back to Egypt for help. And every time they appeal to Egypt for help, things don't go well for them. Egypt becomes the serpent then that tempts them. We see that with, uh, let's say, Solomon, who marries one of Pharaoh's daughters. And things kind of start to go south uh, right from the beginning when he does that. And so the Satan is going to try to use the creation, the idols, uh, that which is supposed to be subject to mankind, and try to get mankind to bow down to it, and then he goes to 
Eve, who is supposed to be under the purview of Adam, and so he gets Adam to listen and bow down to Eve. And so what's the implication? The implication comes that maybe he can get them to think that God should be bowing down to them. If they are bowing down to their subjects, then maybe God will then twist his will to bow down or to serve his subjects. So this is a very devious plot that Satan has, ultimately directed at getting to God, getting back at God for whatever it is that he felt uh, jilted by. God sees through that, and the curse to Satan is, you will now be the lowest of the low. You try to put yourself up as the highest, and over them, you will be lower them, and you will lose this battle. To the woman, he says that she will have extra difficulty with her children, now, what I see in these uh, curses is a two-part pattern where the first part is going to be uh, more, rather specific, and then the second part is going to be a little bit more generic. So to the serpent, the specific part was to Satan himself. I don't, I don't think that any other creation was cursed because of, of what Satan did. Uh, this is a curse to Satan himself, uh, so it's specific to Satan. He is cursed, he is lowest of the low, but in a more generic sense, his descendants, uh, his offspring, his followers, will not win the war against God's followers, against true mankind, uh, those uh, of the second Adam described in Romans chapter 5. To the woman, the specific curse is to her, Eve, her difficulty in having labor. I don't know what labor would have been like prior to this. And I don't know whether or not, uh, if this had not happened, that women today may have had a better time or an easier time with child labor. I don't know that. But I do get the impression that this particular pain was going to be specific to Eve, that she especially would have an extra hard time with her children. Now, again, remember, expand this out to Israel as a whole. Why is it that the Israelites have such a tough time getting every or getting successive generations to remain faithful. It almost never happens where you have a faithful generation and their children also remain faithful. Very rare uh, to find that. And even think about people like David. With as faithful as David was, his son Solomon turns away. With as what semi-faithful Solomon was during portions of his life, his son completely falls away. With as faithful as Jehoshaphat was, his son turns away. With as faithful as Hezekiah was, his son turns away. With as faithful as Josiah tried to be, his sons all turn away. Why did the Israelites have such a tough time with their children? I think it goes back to this very principle, that birthing children here also includes the difficulty in raising the children. It's not just about the birth, but great difficulty and pain in trying to get their children uh, to all follow the Lord. It's going to be a very hard process. Not impossible. We're not saying that it never happened, but it was a very narrow path versus the wide path uh, that was often taken. Only with great labors and difficulties. And I, I do think that there is a lesson for us to learn in this, though it is specific, yes, to Israel, 
I do think that we see the same pattern in our lives today. How tough is it to get faithful consecutive generations? It takes work, not impossible, and it should happen, but it takes a lot of work, takes a lot of pain. Now, the second half of verse 16, the more generic curse that I do think is is more specific to generalities, uh, the desire, uh, the uh, CSB says your desire will be for your husband. What we read from the NET says you will want to control your husband. And the reason it says that is because of chapter 4 and verse 7 where that same phrase is used of Cain, that sin will desire to rule over Cain. It is Cain's responsibility to master it. Likewise, um, it, it was always Adam's job to try to regulate the direction of the family. Uh, it was his job to see to protecting Eve. Uh, Eve tried to upset that process, and she would always then have a struggle with subjection. And we do seem uh, to see that uh, throughout uh, all generations since that time, where there's always this difficulty in the human race to subject ourselves. We don't like subjecting ourselves, and more specifically to the gender roles that God has assigned, we do see that as being a perpetual struggle. Um, but God has clearly established his order and his design from the beginning. And then to man, he curses Adam specifically. Now, yes, he says cursed is the ground, and that is pretty generic. But the specific curse to Adam is that he will have to labor hard, and it will be especially difficult for him to toil. Now, again, that's, that's specific to Adam because not every human uh, who has ever lived have had to fight thorns and thistles physically uh, in order to gain a living. Not everybody has had to even had a hard time. Uh, eating foods. Uh, that is a specific one to Adam. Perhaps it's relatively generic in application to mankind as a whole. There are always some exceptions to that. But the more specific curse, or rather I should say the more generic curse that applies to all people is found at the end of verse 19. You were taken from dust, to dust you shall return. And that certainly applies to all persons. We are all from dust, to dust we shall return. And so God sends them out of paradise, out of the garden, as a representation of his displeasure, of, of their unholiness. They are unfit to be before his presence. And he does it, again, in part, this is discipline, in part out of mercy. This is still connected to God's mercy. Notice his reasoning. I don't want them to live forever. Now that's seems counterintuitive. Well, doesn't God want us to live forever? Isn't that the way he designed us? Isn't that the point of salvation? But notice here, it's he doesn't want them to live forever in this sin-filled state. Now that they have received the curses, he does not want them to live forever in that curse. The only way that they can be freed from the curse is if they die. Likewise, we find for us the only way for us to be free from the curse of sin that we have placed upon ourselves is to die with Christ. Christ told us that anybody who wants to save his life must lose it. And we find that that pattern starts here. If the Israelites wanted any chance, any hope 
of coming back to the Lord, they had to be exiled from the land. They had to receive a wake-up call, and that is exactly what happens. God drives them out of their paradise towards the east, and that was Babylon, and God sets up guards to keep them away for a time, and you'll notice throughout the book of Daniel, as well as Ezekiel, how often they see visions of angels, fires, things of that nature. They are being kept out by spiritual forces for a certain amount of time until God can bring them back the right way. And as it turns out, that ultimately that will be fulfilled through Christ, that we all of us, as we have disobeyed, we are kicked out of God's holy presence, and he will bring us back through and with Christ if we will heed that call. So lots of fantastic things happening in Genesis 3, and come back for Genesis chapter 4.